I'm Bobby Jones, and I'm Afdal Aziz. We're two friends who decided to quit our jobs in corporate life and follow our purpose and passion in helping inspire people to find ways to use their talents for good. Together, we're the co-authors of the best-selling book, Good is a New Cool, Market Like You Give a Damn. And we welcome you to the Good is a New Cool podcast in partnership with Soho House, the podcast for creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs who believe in using business and culture as forces for good. Each episode will help you learn how to implement bold creative actions that can lead to real social change through interviews with the people who are doing it every day. From leading entrepreneurs and world-renowned artists to game-changer designers and award-winning marketers, we will delve deep into their unique stories and the one thing they all have in common, the desire and the courage to transform our world for the better. In this episode, we sit down at Ludlow House in New York City with Dao Yi Chow, co-founder of Iconic Fashion Label Public School, and Rachel Johnson, founder of Thomas Faison, to discuss how the power of fashion and creativity can spark social awareness, dialogue, and action. Okay, so Bobby, how do you feel about the power of fashion to make social change? Is this something that you believe in in your wardrobe and what you wear? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, fashion is, is to me, has, has always been kind of this, this expression of who you are, what you care about, and whether it's a jersey from your favorite team to a picture of an activist. You know, when we used to travel the world, we used to do so for the purpose of really understanding what culture looked like on a global scale. And one of the things that was always really interesting is how fashion became a signifier of who you are and what you identify with culturally. So when you see someone with a pair of Jordans on, you you get a feel for kind of who they are and what they're into. And so fashion has always been to me a way of expressing identity and values. And I think now because of this rise in social consciousness, fashion is connecting to those values in ways that I just think are really interesting. People are wearing, you know, the movements that they are a part of, the issues that they care about. And, I, you know, I, I really feel that. I feel that in, in, in the way that, way that I dress and what I choose to wear, um, probably more so now than I did maybe like 10 years ago. And I'll go back to that Ann Lappy quote that, that we, you know, we both love, that every dollar you spend is a vote for the type of world that you want to live in. And I choose my dollars and what I invest those in wisely. And I do try to wear clothes that contribute to a certain sense of sustainability, a certain sense of values, a certain sense of ethics. Um, so, yeah, I look at fashion as a, as a real indicator of how connected you are to, to social activism. And I think it's going to just continue to increase. Mm. I agree with you. I think the older I get, the fewer brands I wear and the more I really pick them out really carefully. And I think it's because my values have changed. You know, when I was 19 years old and I wore a public enemy T-shirt with pride because it just represented everything that I loved about the culture and the rebellion and the political statements, you know, Today, when I wear a piece of clothing, I really think about the statement it makes about myself as a 44-year-old person, you know. When I got married several years ago, I wore a pair of Tom shoes, a red pair of Tom shoes. And it was because I strongly felt that on this amazing day that I was getting married to the woman I love, I wanted to represent something that was about my values and, and what it meant to wear a socially responsible brand as well. And so... Now, when I see somebody wearing a pair of Tom shoes or a pair of Wobby Pocket glasses or the Adidas Ocean Plastic shoe, there's a connection 
which says, hey, um, we are we are connected in terms of our values, not just aesthetically, but also in terms of our of our social values as well. Um, and I and I think you're absolutely right that that young people today are, are recognizing the power of fashion to show their allegiance to a tribe. And I think fashion itself is is it's really interesting to see fashion reacting to it. Fashion is uh, actually one of the biggest polluters on the planet. I think it's even bigger than the airline industry in terms of the amount of the carbon footprint and the waste. I think fashion itself is going through a moment of reckoning where it's thinking about its role um, in terms of sustainability, but it's also thinking about its role in terms of social justice issues. And that's what we're going to talk about today with, with Dow and Rachel. Now let me introduce you to Dao Yi Chow. New York born and bred, Dao Yi is an award-winning fashion designer who co-founded the street-savvy clothing brand Public School, whose motto is to find perfection in imperfection. We believe that if you have any sort of platform that you should be using it for good. Public School came out from the idea that in public school you can express and identify yourself through the clothes you wear. Kind of similar to what we're looking at today. If you can express who you are in your clothes, can you express what you care about and thus make change? You can utilize fashion to create social awareness by expressing yourself through what it is that you wear. Wear your social activism on your sleeve, if you will. Rachel Johnson, stylist to stars like LeBron James. She's been behind the signature looks of countless big names over the years. Rachel also founded Thomas Faison five years ago which she describes as being not just a wardrobe stylist, but also a lifestylist agency. And central to their style philosophies is a love for diversity. All right, so let's, let's jump into it. So I want to talk about how you got into this world of fashion. But even more importantly, like, when did you fall in love with fashion? I was introduced to fashion by my mother. She took me to every thrift store in New York in the 70s that she could possibly make me dig through. Every fabric store, she made all of my clothes when I was little. So it was a really grassroots education for me in textiles, in silhouettes, in jewelry. That's really where it began, with her. Um, when I knew that I wanted to make it a career, I was 19, I was in college, but halfway through college, I met a gentleman named Groovy Lou, and anybody who's in the industry knows Groove. I was introduced to Groovy, and he told me that there were black women who were being paid to create images for entertainers. And I'm like, and they get paid? They actually get paid to do that? Like, that's what they do for a living. So once I was told that that was actually a career path and one that those who were like me were already excelling in, I got my degree, I finished, but I knew that this was the path for me. I was introduced to fashion, I think, through music. Music videos had a big, big impact. I I had never thought that it would be a career thing. I wanted to do music. You know, that didn't work out too well. And so, uh, so yeah, so fashion was sort of the other thing outside of the music that I was connected to that I felt like it was something that I could use to separate myself from everyone else. No, I love that. And as a follow-up to that, when, when was the first time that you both saw the power of fashion to impact social change? Like, when was that first time that you saw that T-shirt, you saw that wearable and you looked at it and said, that's a statement 
that clearly is, is part of something that's bigger. I would say probably the power of art more than fashion, like what Shepard Ferry did for the Obama campaign his first time around. I felt like that was super impactful on me, just the visual impact of it, the cultural impact of it. The Obama administration was such a movement, you know, culturally, and, and to, to have that incorporated from an art standpoint, I, I thought that that was the first time where I was like, wow. For me, it went back even farther than that in terms of styling. And so I think about uniforms, like I think about what the Fruit of Islam wore and seeing them selling bean pies with bow ties and suits and like yeah. what that cohesiveness and what those uniforms symbolize. Even though I wasn't alive during that time, the Black Panthers, <laughs> the Black Panthers and um, Piggybacking off of what Dow said in terms of music, public enemy, and how they used to march in the videos, and they had all of those steps and those groups that came up with these uniforms that once you saw them, either if you saw them singularly or if you saw them as a unit, it had this immediate impact and this immediate vibe that was emulated or, um, you know, that came from them. And those are, those are some of the things that come to mind immediately for me. So I got to ask, from those humble beginnings, you know, was there a moment when you were setting up your business where you said, this is what I have to do? Well, I own a wardrobe styling agency called the Thomas Faison Agency, and... For me, I had been in the business about eight years, and for those of you who are creatives who have to kill what you eat and have to work to generate a check, and if you're not actually out there working, then no money is being made, I had that epiphany one day. <laughs> and I was about eight years into the business, and I thought, if I stopped working today, what do I have that's tangible that I could pass along to someone else, be that a child, an employee, other family members. And having that conversation with myself was when I decided that I wanted to start a business that could become an entity of its own and grow and thrive on its own. So my company is called Thomas Faison, and that is the combination of my maternal and paternal great grandparents' last names. And I thought that those two names combined together because that legacy still lives in me. Those names could go on and continue to push forward the dream that I started however many years ago. It's been 10 years ago. You're going to have to start asking me the questions before Rachel, because <laughs> <laughs> my answers are it's not true. way more boring. No, no, no. I actually think that that epiphany is happening now for me. Being able to find out how to do everything that I want to do from the same space. You know, now, you know, having been in fashion for however many years, that the activism part feels like the new calling or an actual calling. So to be able to figure out how to do that from the space that you've already sort of made for yourself you know, be socially conscious and active and not have to do that outside of the space that I've already created for myself. I think that that was an epiphany for me. Like, I can sit from the same chair and do all these things that I want to do with greater impact. Let's talk about this time, this moment in time where America has really never felt more fractured as a country, as a culture, and how fashion can play a role in healing that. 
I remember election night and thinking about this time, like in a year or a year and a half or two years down the road, like where would we be? And, you know, it's pretty powerful because at that moment I felt like, you know, I had this one career as a, you know, as a designer that I would have to take on another career as an activist. And it really is that it's like, it's a full-time job and you get burned out. I remember just be, you know, like six months into it, just being burnt out. Like I'd been to every march, signed every petition, had, you know, like rallied all my friends and, you know, went down to, you know, DC for the women's march. And six months of that, you're like exhausted. You, you, you are completely exhausted because you're so totally consumed in what's happening, you know, every single day, every single tweet, every single legislation that's passed. At a point I was like, I don't even want to hear anything. I don't even want to talk about anything anymore. So it became about how do you figure out how to be able to pace yourself? How do you figure out how to be most efficient with your time, right? I'm in the same boat with Dow in terms of working at this feverish pace and being completely involved and knowing about everything and up until three o'clock in the morning and watch Rachel Maddow twice and all of these things trying to be informed. And I mean, I'm literally in the same exact place that you're in, in terms of taking a breath, dialing all of that back and really looking to see where I can have an impact on the people who are in front of me. And, and you know, I think what you both are tapping on is kind of this, this moment of obligation. When, when did that start for you? That, that time when you were just like, you know what, I need to do something and this is a priority. Well, for me, it was actually at the Women's March in DC mm-hmm. and being a small bit of energy in like this dynamic, purposeful movement. It was incredible. And I went to the march by myself. The feeling of unity was something that I had never felt before. And even if people had their own views on every different issue that men, women, children were there for, we knew that we were for humanity. To be a part of that day was was life-changing for me. It heightened my awareness, where a lot of times just flipping the switch in your mind causes a change in yourself. Yeah. The Women's March was unlike anything that I've had ever participated in. If you went down there for, you know, women's rights or immigration reform, whatever you went down there for, I think, you know, everyone was there showing the rest of the world that that is not reflective of who we are. And so that was in January and Fashion Week was, you know, four weeks out from there. That was the moment to say, okay, well, forget everything that we talked about doing for the show. This is what the show was gonna be about. And that's when we did the Make America New York hats. And then the the entire collection was sort of squeezing people in, forcing them to sort of face each other. You know, in New York and in the fashion industry is the biggest bubble that you could probably live in, you know, from a liberal standpoint. And um, so it was just about trying to make people uncomfortable and face each other, look at each other. You know, like this is, your neighbor, this is your family, this is the person that you see every day. This is who we are. And so for me and for Max and for everything that we do at public school, that it, it all starts with that idea of having grown up in New York City and being able to experience other people's cultures and 
to accept that and to be accepted at the same time, you know, that's at the core of everything that we that we do. The show is gonna be, you know, a fuck you to Trump, essentially. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> So let's talk about the the cover, the GQ uh, cover of Colin Kaepernick. Such an iconic moment when that came out. You know, I think it just hit the right moment in terms of the cultural conversation that was going on around the NFL and, you know, uh, the role of athletes, um, you know. And I don't know about you, but when I saw that cover, I was, like, blown away. I was as well. I mean, I to be honest with you, I can't remember the last magazine cover that had that much social media energy and conversation around it as when that that cover dropped. It just was such a powerful image of this athlete, this citizen. This activist. This activist and this powerful, unapologetic image of just blackness. Like he is a black man, this afro, the black turtleneck, the black... Leather blazer. The I mean, reference to the Black Panther. The Black look. Panther. Yeah. It was everything about it was powerful, and it it came out during a time when there was so much criticism for athletes for taking a knee, and so many athletes were trying to find ways of explaining why they were taking the stand in ways that felt non-threatening and wouldn't be viewed in a negative light by fans or media. And to see this image of this man who seemed to just look dead center at anybody who was looking at this cover and not worried about it. And people just took it and it became literally like this image that so many people uh, were using as kind of like, this is the image that captures this moment. Of the resistance. Of the resistance. Yeah. And not blinking, not being apologetic, not smiling, not trying to appease anyone. This was this was a moment, and and they captured it. And what was uh, so much grace and eloquence in the fact that he decided not to do an interview with GQ, to yeah. let the images speaks for himself, let other people tell his story. There's an amazing moment where the symbolism of what you wear can convey so much without a single word being spoken. I think that's the really powerful thing that fashion can do, um, and it can it can ripple around the world with a single image without anybody understanding um, the language of the magazine that it showed up in. Um, and I think that's the power of fashion. Rachel, so we have to hear the story of how you got the call to do this iconic GQ cover with Colin Kaepernick. Take us behind the scenes of what was happening um, that led up to this moment. Um, his agent called me. I was boohoo crying on the phone, like, I can't believe this. This is so historic. Like, oh my God. And you know, after you've been doing something for 18 years, it's like, what else could possibly happen that's cool, you know? Like, you've done this, you've done that, you can rattle off all of these things, but this was, like, it for me, okay? One of Colin's requirements was that I be present and be part of the creative team and that, you know, he was deciding whether or not he was going to do it. Well, the next day, or even later on that night, was the night that President Trump 
made the comment about football players who kneel being sons of bitches. And if you guys remember that weekend, I'm a big football fan. If you guys remember that weekend, it was all about what are the players going to do? What are they going to do on Sunday? How are they going to show their unity? How are they going to show which side of history they're going to stand on? Not only was I interested to see what the players and how the owners in the NFL was going to handle what President Trump said, I also knew for facts, I'm like, there's no way Colin says no to doing this cover. Had you worked with Colin before? Yeah, so I've been working with Colin for, um, I've been working with Cap for, I guess, five or six years. And I promise you that when I met him, no way did I ever think that he would become like <laughs> the man who he is today. So one of his requests and one of his requirements is that he only wanted to wear designers of color and female designers. He wanted to give a platform to designers who would have never, ever seen this cover or the inside of these pages. Interestingly, as the looks began to come together, everything turned out to be black and white. And it wasn't something that we did on purpose, but as you know, sometimes during fittings, these looks kind of create themselves. This t-shirt is by a designer called Pierre Moss. It says even more names, and it highlights names of our fallen who, uh, who were killed via police brutality. And he had a t-shirt before this that was just names, but now we continue to fill up more and more t-shirts, unfortunately. So now there's even more names on this t-shirt and you know, it goes on and on. This is a one of one piece. He did not want to produce it commercially. Pierre Moss did not want to benefit financially from the deaths of our people. He made this t-shirt specifically to help Colin tell his story in this piece. In this next section, we're going to talk to Dai Cha about the, the work that he's done um, around DACA. And for those who don't know, uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, American immigration policy that allowed some individuals who enter the country as minors uh, to receive a two-year renewable period of deferred action from deportation, um, established by the Obama administration in June 2012, and plans to begin phasing it out were initiated by the Trump administration in September 2017. And Dow talks about how so much of his work is influenced by the culture around him. Um, and I think this particular moment in time had so much resonance for him, right, in terms of looking at immigrants um, as being the backbone of this country um, and how they were being treated sparked something in him in, that he had to express in his work. You know, it's, it's the, quote, uh, against the ruin of the world, the only defense is the creative act. Kenneth, Kenneth Rexroth, absolutely. And, you know, what's happening right now, particularly from a legislative standpoint, um, it does feel like the ruin of, of, of the country and a lot of the ideals about inclusiveness and all those other things. And in that backdrop, uh, his defense was the creative act. And what a beautiful creative act to take um, the iconography of the the dream team, the yes. U.S. Olympic basketball team, uh, a moment when America was loved and respected by people around the world, yes. and to use that that iconography to flip it and talk about the dreamers, you know, the, the the children who are in this country who are at risk of being deported through no fault of their own. Uh, that was a creative stroke of genius to kind of come back with that that um, 
that reframing of this idea of what it is to be an American and what it is to dream? I mean, you know, part of the process in figuring out how to be most impactful is knowing, you know, what your limitations are and knowing, you know, when you need help. And so the ACLU has been, we've partnered with them on a few projects and I'm sure everyone is familiar with the ACLU. It's a hundred plus year old uh, organization that has legislators in every single state in the U.S. and they've been suing the U.S. government literally for over a hundred years in defense of people who don't have a voice, who you know don't have the means to go to court or to you know take on these battles. So immigration reform was one of our priorities because it affects us directly. You know we employ a whole bunch of people from outside the country that need visa sponsorships. And then most of our factory workers here in New York and in LA are also immigrants. Some of them are illegal immigrants. So the fashion industry as a whole, immigration reform really impacts the workforce. And so when they rescinded DACA, you know, that that was a, a touch point for us, that that was something like, fuck, like this, is, this impacts us directly and the people that we work with. So that was something that immediately we felt like the ACLU, you know, would, would help be able to help us sort of push the, the message out further. So we collabed on this. Basically, it's, a, it's a, a riff on the USA basketball team logo from 92, which was the dream team, which was the, you know, many argue the best group of basketball players on one team. And that team was symbolic of the US at its height when they touched down in Barcelona and even all the, the scrimmages that they played before, you hear the stories that the other teams from the other countries would, during play, Charles Barkley is shooting a free throw and the guy's walking off the, the line to shake his hand while he's shooting free throw. <laughs> <laughs> all the players getting mobbed. And so when you think back to the 90s, that the US had this world standing and you fast forward 25 years later and God knows what people are thinking of the U.S. now. And so, you know, like when you think about DACA and you think about the 690,000 dreamers who are affected by the program and the 1.1 million that could potentially be eligible for that program, you know, we, we want to thank them for inspiring this work and making us feel like we needed to do something. That particular sweatshirt, all the proceeds went back to the ACLU. So this has been a super special project. So let me ask the question, has finding this new activism within you helped you become a better artist? If better means just more conscious and more responsible, yeah, it's made, it's made me better. It has given us a new purpose, and we have really specific things that we want to accomplish. We have, aside from immigration reform, climate change, those, those are two big issues that we are addressing specifically in our work, in our partnerships. So it really is targeted and it really is focused. And if I learned anything from sort of these last 18 months is that you have to find that one or two things that you, because you, you, you'll get nowhere sort of trying to touch every single thing and be every single place. What are the, the biggest lessons you've learned from your journey thus far? What are the things that you've learned that you want everyone that's here to know? For me, it's the realization that people are watching you. No matter what position you play in your world, you're always impacting 
the person sitting next to you, the person coming up underneath you, your children. And it's taken a long time for that to click into my head because you know, for a long time, I wondered if people said those things just to have something to say, like some type of opening line or, you know, a way to relate and, you know, or to have a conversation. But seeing the impact that the work that I've done has had on specifically the women who worked or trained under me and then the work that they've done that's then had the impact. I'm really able to see that my own personal um, contribution really has a huge ripple effect on so many other people. And the, and the precursor to that is that you are good enough, you know, and then that's a current lesson is that you are good enough as you are. Like, you don't have to try and be someone else or be somebody that someone else thinks that you should be or expects you to be in our business specifically uh, in fashion that your work is always being critiqued or, or judged. And so you never, I, I've never felt good enough or I've never felt like I quite fit in anywhere. And so you're always trying to figure out how to be able to fit in or to, to, to be good enough, but stop doing that and just honor those chances that you have to affect your community or your, your family or your partner, and eventually, hopefully, that will affect the world. Wow. Well, you guys, yeah, I give it up. I mean, I think that's a pretty good place, pretty high bar we've hit right there. Yeah. I don't know where else to go except to say thank you, Rachel and Dale, for coming today. Yes, I want to thank you both, but not just what you do, but who you are and how you show up in the world and the work that you do, the ripple effect that you create just by being you right now. And I want to thank you all for joining us. This is the kickoff of a year-long series of, of events. It's an amazing start. I mean, I don't, I don't know where we go from here. I mean, you guys have raised the bar. And if uh, everyone in the room can join me in doing one thing before you leave, please join me in, in wishing our brother Dao Yi a happy birthday tonight. That was an amazing first conversation to have as a good as an equal podcast. And I think you and I were sitting there going like, oh man, now how do we top this? Because yeah. it got so deep and spiritual and personal, you know. And what I loved about both Rachel and Dow was how they'd been on this journey as as creatives, right? And they had uh, an abrupt moment of trauma where because of the U.S. election and the way it went, their values were really in jeopardy. And I think what I loved about both of them was how they both reacted to it, like I think many people reacted to it, which is to get out there and burn fast and burn intensely to try and do everything, go on every single march, sign every petition. And then they each had a moment where they pulled back and went, hold up, what is the most valuable use of my time and my creativity and my talent? Um, and by being choiceful about where they spent their energy, um, I think they were able to be a thousand times more effective um, what's wonderful is that they were able to come back and use their gifts and their passions, but because of that newfound activism, take it to a whole new level. I, I agree. You know, I, I think listening to them talk about that moment of obligation and, and what the Women's March was for them, 
that that moment where they realized they had to do something and and they really were inspired to do it and and really embracing that because I think we all are feeling that in different ways and at different times, but embracing that and and using that as a catalyst to action, even if you don't know what the the thing is that you should be doing. It goes back to what we often talk about is that clarity often follows action. And so just do the next thing. If it's just showing up at the rally or the protest or the march or, or whether it's the next creative act, whatever it is, that act leads to the next act. And then over time, you start to kind of find your voice, find your lane, and that clarity begins to reveal itself. And I think that's what they both kind of got in their own way o- over time. And I think to your point about being able to combine that with your your superpowers, like the things that you do uniquely, I thought was really important. They were able to find ways of creating change right where they are. They didn't have to create something different. They could do it during their current work in their current lives, just being authentic to who they are. You know, I think lastly, um, this idea that we can all do something. And I think that it's the smallest thing sometimes that that makes that that difference. And um, creatively, I think they both found something that they could do, something they can create, something that they can support, which connected them to a broader movement. And I, and I think all of those things combined have helped them to really be, uh, I think, at the beginning stages of doing some really impactful work in the world. This program was brought to you by Good Is A New Cool and Soho House, in association with Radio Wolfgang. It was hosted by me, Bobby Jones, and Aftel Aziz, and featured Dao Yi Chow, co-founder of Iconic Fashion Label Public School, and Rachel Johnson, founder of Thomas Faison, 